0: Hello everyone, thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I wanna to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I wanna welcome you back. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their supportive US efforts To advance a viable two state outcome to the Israeli Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. Before we begin, I would like to reiterate the sentiment Israel Policy Forum expressed in our statement this past weekend. We congratulate President elect Joe Biden and Vice President elect Kamala Harris on their victory. In particular, I would like to note the historic nature of Senator Harris's position as the first woman, first Black American. And first South Asian American to be elected to the office of the Vice President. I would also like to take us to take a moment to remember Saeb Erekat, who passed away today from complications from coronavirus. Saeb, who was well known to Israel Policy Forum, was the primary Palestinian interlocutor with Israelis, with American Jews, and with the American government for decades. And he was a tireless advocate for the Palestinian cause. Despite his occasional inflammatory rhetoric, Saeb was an avid proponent of two states and consistently espoused nonviolence. Let us take a moment to remember him. Thank you. In this critical moment, we're pleased to return to you with more Tuesday video briefings. The impending arrival of a new administration in Washington presents important opportunities for our efforts to ensure a Jewish, democratic, and secure future for the state of Israel and a robust U.S.-Israel relationship. To stay informed about our work and our upcoming programs, I encourage you to visit our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org to become an email subscriber. On our website, I also invite you to check out our policy director, Michael Koplow's weekly column, which comes out every Thursday, as well as information on how young professionals can get involved through our IPF Atid program. I also encourage you to tune into our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. To keep all of our work going, we rely on your generosity. So to all of our supporters on this program, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you. If you view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource, want to help ensure the success of our initiatives in the year ahead, and have not already done so, then I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now on to today's program. To better understand the impact of the election on U.S.-Israel relations, U.S.-Palestinian relations, and American policy toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I'm pleased to be joined by two members of Israel Policy's team leading our work in Washington. Michael Koplo is our policy director, and Aaron Weinberg is our director of government relations. With that, Michael and Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Michael, could you lead us off with an overview of what Joe Biden's biggest priorities will be on the Israeli-Palestinian front? Understanding, of course, that there are major domestic priorities for the incoming administration to address as well.
1: Sure. So, I think, for starters, the biggest challenge uh, in the short term and the uh, uh, immediate priority that President Biden will have is to restore the U.S. relationship with the Palestinians. Uh, that is a relationship that really has um, eroded uh, under, under the Trump administration, um, partially due to Trump administration policies, partially due to the Palestinian response to Trump administration policies. Uh, but I think there's little question that since the United States first agreed to recognize and negotiate with the PLO decades ago, uh, the relationship with the Palestinians uh, right now is probably at its lowest point. And there are a few things that a Biden administration is likely to do in the beginning to reset that. Uh, one is going to be the resumption of U.S. aid in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, um, It's important to keep in mind that beginning in 2014, under the Obama administration, the U.S. ended all direct budget support for the Palestinian Authority over concerns of PA corruption and over concerns of the prisoner payment system employed by the Palestinians. So uh, I don't think that until those issues are addressed, any direct budget support to the Palestinian Authority is going to return. But uh, the U.S., of course, had been spending money on humanitarian assistance, it had been spending money uh, on infrastructure projects in the West Bank and Gaza, and it had been uh, spending money on conflict mitigation people to people programs. All of that was uh, initially frozen and then basically canceled by the Trump administration. And so I'm uh, fairly confident that we're gonna see a Biden administration resume that funding consistent with the restrictions that uh, Congress has placed upon them with the Taylor Force Act, uh, which says that no money can go to directly benefit the Palestinian Authority. Second, uh, about a year and a half ago, the United States closed the Consulate General in Jerusalem, which was uh, essentially an independent diplomatic mission to the Palestinians. It operated separately from the U.S. Embassy, and the Consul General reported not to the U.S. Ambassador, but reported directly back Uh, to the State Department. Now, the impact of closing that was that the Palestinians who had been used to dealing with uh, essentially a separate diplomatic presence uh, were now forced to deal directly with the embassy. Um, And I think that uh, it's relatively certain that the old system where you have the U.S. ambassador to Israel and you have the conflict general uh, that really deals with Palestinian affairs, uh, I think that uh, that is that is almost certainly Going, going to go back. There's a question about the PLO mission in DC, uh, which was also closed by the Trump administration um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, that's more difficult to reopen uh, because of legislation that's been passed. Uh, but I'm sure there will be uh, there will be an effort made to see if that can be done. Um, and I also think that uh, something we're likely to see from a Biden administration is a real effort to push the Palestinians to reform their prisoner payment system, um, which you know, is not only a problem normatively, uh, it has in a lot of ways been the biggest stumbling block in the relationship between the US and the Palestinians. Um, it is what led to the Taylor Force Act. It's, uh, it's what led to the Anti-Terrorism Certification Act. Um, and I think that uh, until it gets addressed, it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. Uh, to engage with the Palestinians as fully as it would like. And so I, uh, I think that we'll probably see an effort on that front as well. Um, to, and that is something, of course, that, uh, that will make the Israeli government happy too. And so I think that's, that's probably you know off the bat the priorities we're going to see when it comes, uh, when it comes to the Palestinian side. Uh, and on the Israeli side, I'll just I'll briefly say, um, there's a wide recognition, uh, I think, within uh, the future Biden administration, and certainly by President-elect Biden himself, that the U.S. is a critical ally, um, that uh, that military assistance to Israel will continue uh, no matter what, um, that Israeli security is a high priority, uh, and I also expect, given what um, Vice President or President-elect Biden has said about his willingness to, uh, enter into a new deal with Iran, uh, surrounding its nuclear program. Uh, I think that the Biden administration is probably going to you know, want to have some sort of Israeli buy-in on that. And we'll probably want to start things off on, on really, um, a solid footing of, 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 of friendship and, and open dialogue. Um, so I think those are probably going to be the priorities, uh, really starting on day one.
0: Thanks, Michael. I think we're probably going to want to delve in a little deeper to the, uh, the Iran deal and what, what a Biden administration might do, but uh, let, let's move on for now, but I'd like to circle back either through my questions or audience questions on that. Um, give, we saw the Trump administration put Israel at the forefront of their agenda and the Obama administration before them made resolving the conflict an early and high priority. Given that, Aaron, how much emphasis do you think the Biden administration will put on Israel issues and resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict?
2: Great, thank you, Susie. That's a great question and and great to be with you all. Um, You know, the the theory floating around Washington these days um, is that, you know, the Biden administration is the Biden-Harris administration is gonna de-emphasize the Middle East and especially Israel-Palestine. I am skeptical of this. Um, I think the conflict will always remain. I think the parties will continue to force it to be on the agenda of any American administration whether it by their actions, be that be demolitions, settlement expansion, acts of terror, unilateral action, be it on Israel side or the Palestinian side in international fora, violence. I mean, sometimes we forget uh, that Israel that Israel and the Palestinian territories are still a volatile region um, and that conflict management can really only go so far. And that U.S. leadership is absolutely needed in order to prevent violence and save lives, nevertheless, solve the conflict. Um, And we've seen this notion before, I should say, of of de-emphasizing the conflict and it not being uh, an issue that that the administration is going to deal with. I mean, we saw the Obama pivot to Asia. We've seen many efforts of previous administrations to claim that they're not going to focus on the Middle East as much. Yet somehow we all the conflict always seems to make it back on the agenda. Um, You know, with that said, there will be uh, a very stark contrast to the emphasis that the Trump administration has put on Israel, um, especially as they have touted it as their main foreign policy achievement and really one of their core talking points, whether it be in the campaign or um, in the White House. And, you know, there's often lack of a distinction there. Um, And, you know, the 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 conventional thinking around D.C. is that even uh, in a Biden administration, Israel will occupy even less of an emphasis than it did um, in the Obama administration. As you said, um, that that prioritized searching for Israeli-Palestinian peace. Um, that may be true. It's, I think, a matter of degrees, not a not a yes or no. Um, you know. With that said, uh, you heard all of the issues that the Biden administration will prioritize from Michael in and, and his previous answer. I still think there's going to be a real effort to deal with this issue. Um, and that it won't take long uh, for the parties to force the hand of the Biden administration uh, to seek to engage on this, and that they will be forced to, invol- to be involved uh, fairly quickly.
0: Erin, here's another question for you. Uh, last week's election also saw some changes in Congress. Democrats retained control of the House, but lost several seats while Republicans held the Senate pending the outcome of two runoff races in Georgia this coming January. So what is your read on how the state of Congress after this election impacts American policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Thanks Susie.
2: this is by far my favorite question. Um, I mean, listen, I wish I had easier an easier answer. I think for those of us who work on this issue and who work with Congress on it, um, there are even more difficult days ahead. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, let's break it down a little bit. So in the Senate, as you mentioned, uh, currently, recalled races are at a 48-48 tie between Democrats and Republicans with four seats outstanding, including the two um, Georgia runoffs that will likely uh, determine control of the Senate. In the House, and this is really critical uh, in understanding all of this, Democrats will likely remain uh, in control of the House, but with a four to eight seat skinny majority. So a few things to keep in mind. Um, Progressives, there is no doubt are ascendant on this issue, though I think not nearly as drastically as some have claimed, uh, especially in the press. Um, But we've seen sort of this ultra progressive and there's lots of names for it and you can decide your own name, uh, but we can decide sort of this ultra progressive wing uh, which currently holds about four to six votes um, on this issue uh, with uh, adding three to four votes. Um in this in this Congress from primary victories uh, almost exclusively. Um, So, and on the other side, we see we have the moderates, um, which you can see even a moderate demonstration of their strength in the 12 votes of people who did not vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker at the beginning of the 116th Congress, this current Congress, likely adding a vote or two um, among the call the 20 or so remaining seats that have yet to be called. Um, And I think that's a low ball estimate of their strength. Um, But of these groups, um, uh, you know, both of these groups, uh, whether it be, you know, the uh, ultra progressives with anywhere, you know, between seven to 10 seats uh, votes or the the moderates with likely even more than that, will have more in their ranks, will have more in their block than the Democratic majority is likely to be, um, which is going to make it very, very hard to legislate in the House. Um, it's going to be very difficult to hold the caucus together, and I do not envy um, any of the Democratic leadership in seeking to hold their caucus together. Um, and what it means practically is that, you know, what we've seen in the 116th, the current Congress, is Democrats passing bills um, that have been mostly Democrat only um, and Democrat bills and pressuring the Senates to seek to take, that, take those up, and that probably, likely will not even be possible with such a fragile coalition in the House. Um, which will put sort of two emphasis on two things. One, uh, bipartisan measures, which um, tend to be less controversial, though not always, but will come under increased scrutiny and will be even more difficult to pass. Um, And instead of having the House negotiate with the Senate, the House will have to first negotiate within itself to an even greater degree. And then appropriations, the process by which money is um, uh, uh, sort of assigned for lack of a better uh, uh, explanation. Um, Which I think will be the majority, I mean, not technically, but a huge portion of the actual legislating that gets done in the 117th Congress, even more so than the 116th Congress, which is seen as quite stagnant. So there are no lack of challenges ahead, um, but luckily, many of the people who are attuned to this, including us at Israel Policy Forum, um, are incredibly um, ready to deal with these challenges, have the relationships that we need in order to be successful, and look forward to um, an exciting 117th Congress.
0: Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Michael, what aspects, if any, of the Trump administration's approach to Israel and its neighbors do you expect President-elect Biden to continue and why?
1: I think that uh, President-elect Biden is going to try to build upon the success the Trump administration had with the Abraham Accords. It's something that President-elect Biden has has touted as a positive for the region, uh, it's something that uh, Tony Blinken in uh, a number of interviews has also touted as a positive for the region, um, and I also think um, that doing so is is likely to help in terms of uh, in terms of the Iran aspects too. If the United States uh, indeed is looking to re-enter some sort of deal, um, I think it uh, probably will want to uh, will want to. Um, be involved in, in sort of shoring up relations uh, between Israel and, and other states uh, in in the region and making sure that the U.S. US is involved in that. Um, so I'm certain that will continue. And uh, and I also think that um, not every single thing that President Trump uh, has done on Israel is going to automatically be something um, opposed by a Biden administration. And so uh, for instance, uh, the embassy uh, in Jerusalem is going to stay in Jerusalem. Um, certainly, there's not going to be any drop-off in, uh, in military assistance to Israel. Um, the Trump administration today formally notified Congress uh, of its intention to sell a large arms package to the UAE, which, um, <laughs> whether, anybody, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, is, of course, a part of the Abraham Accords. Um, and, uh, you know, concurrent with that uh, was weeks, if not uh, if not months, uh, of meetings between the Pentagon and the Israeli Ministry of Defense over what Israel would get in return. And um, I'm confident the Biden administration will pick up on, on whatever was agreed uh, by the Trump administration, um, you know, at least to, to, a, to a very large extent. So I do think we'll see Continuity in some things, particularly on on this idea of uh, normalized relations, and and obviously on, on the notion of security assistance to Israel, um, where I don't think we will see uh, continuity is in Trump administration policies on the West Bank. You know, nearly all of those I think uh, are going to be elements that are um, reversed or challenged by by a Biden team.
0: Just to pick up on that, Michael, in terms of the arms sales that have been part of normalization agreements to date. Do you have any expectation of what a Biden administration might do with regard to some of these arms sales? I mean, we've we've had discussions uh, included on some of our webinars about an unfolding arms race potentially in the Middle East, which would not bode well long term for Israel's security. Do you think that there's room for uh, future normalization agreements to include not only some sort of an arms package that's desired by whatever Arab state is is part of that agreement, but also getting some movement in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, obviously the UAE came out uh, with its condition about annexation, and I guess we'll see if that holds or not. That's another question I have, but uh, do you think there's space for the Biden administration in future normalization agreements to achieve some sort of support for moving to, for taking positive steps on the Israeli-Palestinian front,
1: I do. We've seen we've seen a couple of different models now over the last few months. Uh, the deal with the UAE involved a large arms package and also involved um, a commitment, not uh, not on Israel's part, but uh, but seemingly a commitment on the U.S.'s part, not to green light West Bank annexation, uh, which was something that the Emiratis the Emiratis had asked for, and then we saw. Uh, Bahrain join, and with Bahrain, you didn't have either of these elements. Um, So far, there is no no arms package to Bahrain that has come to light, Uh, and the Bahraini Bahrainis also did not um, doesn't seem as if they asked for any move on the Israeli Palestinian front. Uh, And then you have the example of Sudan, where um, it's kind of split. Uh, It's not not an arms package, but uh, the Sudanese government uh, agreed to pay a settlement to uh, U.S. victims of terrorism. and in return, they're taken off the U.S. terrorist list. Uh, but again, there was no Israeli-Palestinian angle. So, you know, we have these different models. I think that a Biden administration uh, is going to be more likely to try and push Middle Eastern states to um, to use their use their influence here to have some Israeli-Palestinian angle tied in. And I also think that a Biden administration is going to be more reluctant to give these giant arms packages to states in the region, not only because, as you point out, um, I don't think it's an American interest to have, to have an arms race uh, in the region. And already, you know, we've seen that the UAE F-35 deal has ignited that to an extent. The countries have asked for F-35s. Uh, I'm sure that the Saudis and Egyptians both both want F-35s. Um, you know, I don't think this is something that the Biden administration will wanna see. But I also, frankly, um, while I'm not, I'm not so worried about uh, Emirati F-35s uh, in terms of Israel's direct security, it certainly is not in, in Israel's security to have these weapons go to anybody who asks, who asks for them. So, you know, I think that um, the Biden team is likely to take uh, a different approach in terms of the tactics of how, of how you get to these. Now, um, the, the big prize, of course, that is sitting out there is Saudi Arabia. And on that front, I think it almost, if it happens, it will almost certainly have to look more like the Emirati deal than the Bahraini deal because the Saudis, I don't think, um, I don't think they're gonna do it absent a large arms package. I think this is you know, what, they're, what they're looking for, but I also don't think that they can do it domestically without some sort of win on the Palestinian side and some sort of concession from, from Israel. Um, so I think that that's the more likely path if we see more of these, and certainly with with you know with big states, a state like a small state like Oman is one thing, um, but you know uh, a state like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, uh, I think that that's probably going to going to look uh, it'll be more complicated, and and it's going to have to involve some sort of movement uh, with regard to the Palestinian issue.
0: And Aaron, for you, just uh, one more question on the sale of F 35s to the UAE. As you know, as we know, it's become a source of controversy on both sides of the Atlantic. President-elect Biden's chief foreign policy advisor, Tony Blinken, someone well-known to Israel Policy Forum, has expressed concern about the sale, though he didn't rule out implementing it. Aaron, what do you think the fate of the sale will be under a Biden administration? Do you think it's a done deal?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And I think it's possible that Michael and I might disagree here, which means I'm probably wrong. Um, But what I will say is, you know, we have to remember that arms sales like this require congressional approval. Um, And from everything that I've heard from congressional Democrats, they're not thrilled with this deal. Um, As you mentioned, Tony Blinken and the vice president and now President-elect's camp um, have expressed extreme skepticism. Um, And so I think it's possible that we see um, a number of different tactics, the chief being a delay tactic, which we know can be delayed. Delayed six months, delayed a year, delayed two years, delayed four years, delayed eight years. Right? We can also, and I, I don't, I don't personally see the Biden administration moving full force ahead without some changes in the calculations or in circumstance, um, because I don't think this is something they're going to want to expel or expend political capital on in order to push through Congress. Um, you know, there are lots of dynamics in which could that could change this. Um, but we even see today the tenuous nature of this deal with the UAE ambassador giving an interview um, on Israeli TV, the UAE ambassador to the US, Yosef Al taiba Yosef taiba giving an interview on Israeli TV specifically on this issue, an issue he's refused to comment publicly on to my knowledge up until this point. Um, so clearly the UAE is trying to make progress and, and sees the Biden administration um, as, a, as a threat to making this deal happen. Um, and move forward. So uh, my my conclusion is: I think it's not a done deal. I think it's not set, and I'm looking at it with with quite a bit of skepticism.
1: And I'll just I'll just jump in and say um, I I always defer to Aaron on in terms of what the what the mood is in Congress. Um, so uh, so I will I will certainly defer defer to him to him on that question. I do think in this instance, you know, it may not be a, a done deal, but I also think it's going to be difficult to walk back. And this is where Aaron will be happy, because this is where I'm going to put on my my politics hat and not my policy hat. Um, I'm not sure the Biden administration will want to start off, um, again, if they're looking to get some some sort of um, agreement or at least you know, tacit assent from Israel and, and the Emiratis uh, on an Iran deal. I don't think that they're necessarily going to want to start off uh, in a fight uh, with the Emiratis over, over F-35s. And... To the extent that getting rid of the F thirty five package makes the Abraham Accords and normalization between Israel and the UAE on shakier ground, I think that's probably also something uh, that a Biden administration will want to avoid. And I also think politically, it's a bit harder to um, to stand in front of it now after both Prime Minister Netanyahu and Defense Minister Gantz, you know, after negotiations of, of what Israel was going to get in return, um, you know. Both came out and publicly said, from Israel's perspective, it's okay. So, you know, I agree with Aaron. It's, it's, you know, until it's done, it's certainly not a done deal. And, and you know, there are um, as, you know, all the obstacles that Aaron points out. I think certainly are there. Uh, I think I'm just, a, I'm a bit more, um, I'm a bit more bullish than Aaron is that it'll, it'll ultimately go through. And I
2: think, and I, I think Michael raises some really, really excellent points here, and and probably is right as as, as usual. But what I will say is, no matter which of us is 100% right, it's going to be a very sticky and frustrating situation for the Biden administration to walk into on day one, and there's really you know, no excellent choice here. So no matter what gets decided, it's going to be um, a challenging situation for a Biden administration to walk into uh, without an excellent choice.
0: Michael, you made reference to what Israel might be getting in return, and what, what is on the table for what Israel might be getting in return? I mean, there's talk about F-22 jets, or massive ordnance penetrators equipped for bomber planes, the Israeli Air Force doesn't actually fly. So do you want to just say a word about that before we move on?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's no way of knowing for sure, of course, because these details aren't public. You know, from um, from kind of what's what has been said publicly, um, it looks like Israel will end up getting um, more F-35s. The original deal with Israel was for 50 and then, and then another batch of 15. You know, it seems like they're gonna get another 10 to 15 F-35s. Um, it's also possible that they're going to get a variant. There's a variant of F-35 that can actually um, do near vertical takeoffs and landings. And so it looks like they may they may get those. Um, F-22s seem to be completely off the table, but uh, but it sounds like the Israelis have asked for V-22s, which are um, the tilt rotor Ospreys that, that are sort of, um, you know, kind of like a helicopter and kind of like an airplane. Um, and what's interesting about those is that they're really used to transport uh, special forces, kind of on long-range missions, and I think we all know what the Israeli government would want uh, would want to use those for. Um, and uh, and I'm, um, you know, I think there's probably a, there's, they probably also, you know, have some sort of deal on um, moving up delivery date of certain items. Uh, you know, we're or, or front-loading money that can be spent, um, and you know, so there may be other stuff that we just, you know, won't find out about until somebody spots it in Israel. But it seems like that's what it is um, on, you know, on bunker busters. As you point out, uh, Israel neither has the planes necessary to carry them nor the runway necessary to accommodate the planes to carry them. Um, but you know, and I'm sure Aaron can speak more to this because I'm not entirely sure. But I think you know the the bunker buster bill, uh, which was introduced by uh, Representatives Godheimer and Mass. I think that's something that's kind of been been introduced, you know, in in past Congresses as well. I kind of look at that as um, that seems more for show than for anything else, but, you know, this is, this is Aaron, Aaron's area of expertise, not mine.
0: Aaron, do you want
2: to add anything? No, I mean, I think, listen, bunker buster bill, th- that's something that's been present in the Congress for many years and many Congresses. There's been a lot of congressional leadership on it. There's been attempts to po- include it in appropriations packages, sometimes successfully. Uh, I'm not, you know, I think uh, we have to see how the larger packages, I mean, in terms of the immediate right this this plays into like the situation with the CR and what's going to happen if they're going to actually pass appropriations. That's continuing resolution
0: for people who live outside of Washington.
2: Yes. Thank you, Susie. (laughs) Um, Putting it back into regular talk without jargon. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen in the lame duck period in the period between uh, now and when the um, Biden administration takes office in order to fund the government. Um, there are, uh, the Senate foreign relate state foreign and operate operations bill, which is the bill that governs all foreign aid and uh, was just released. The Senate version was just released this morning. And so I haven't actually read every word yet. Um, so I think we have to see what happens in negotiations what happens on the Senate side in order to understand what the larger picture is. I'm sure if there is a request for bunker busting that that's not something that the Congress is going to pass up on.
0: So, again, if you want to ask a question, we already have a bunch, and I'm sure I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. They're great questions, but if you have one, please type in the Q&A box. We'll get to as many as we can. I've got a couple more. Um, In addition to explicit support for formal annexation, the Trump administration also turned a blind eye to de facto annexation, including a recent wave of demolitions carried out by Israel against Palestinian structures in the West Bank. There was also the implicit recognition of Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank by way of lifting geographic restrictions on bilateral U.S.-Israel scientific and commercial projects just two weeks ago. Michael, how will the Biden administration walk this back?
1: First of all, a Biden administration, you know, they've, been clear for, they've been clear for months during the campaign, and I'm sure they will be just as clear on day one in office um, does not support unilateral annexation uh, in the West Bank uh, of any of any sort. So I think a you know extremely clear and unambiguous statement on that um, you know is something that, that we'll see and uh, you know that will kind of put put the U.S. on record. Um, in terms of some of the other moves, you know, they're they're a little harder to walk back. So you know, for instance. You brought up uh, the MOU that was signed a couple of weeks ago um, between the U.S. and Israel on extending scientific cooperation to uh, to projects to projects in the West Bank and to projects that deal with the West Bank, uh, the West Bank and the Golan Heights. Um, you know, and that was that was a restriction that had been placed had been in place in the MOU since the Nixon administration and had been confirmed by every administration since. Um, you know, that wasn't a unilateral American declaration. That's an MOU signed by both sides. So for the Biden administration to rescind it, um, you actually have to have the Israelis agree to rescind it. Um, You know, and that's something that, uh, while not impossible, uh, given that the Israeli government signed that MOU, um, you know, every, every time it came up until just now, when it was changed, you know, walking that back is always harder than kind of keeping it in place. So I think, you know, that 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 may be that may be tough, um, and on things like you know Israeli demolitions in the West Bank, um, this administration has has largely turned a blind eye to that sort of stuff. Um, you know, obviously we've seen in the past other administrations have not. Um, I expect a Biden administration to certainly, in private, you know, behind the scenes, be very clear with the Israeli government that that is not the kind of stuff that. It will support or wants to see, um, but I also don't think that we're going to see the same level of um, kind of public arguing that we sometimes saw uh, between the Israeli government and uh, and the U.S. government during the Obama administration, because you know I don't think that a I don't think it's it's Biden style. Um, B uh, as I said before, I think that. If his priority for the region is dealing with Iran at the beginning, uh, he's going to want to tamp down public um, public fighting between uh, the U.S. and Israel. And, um, and and we'll see. I think a lot of it really is going to depend on on what goes on behind the scenes and, and what gets communicated privately. Um, but I, I do think that a Biden administration is going to look to avoid big public blow ups while being very clear that, you know, Giant things that really change change the status quo in a huge way, like annexation, you know, are are absolutely unacceptable.
2: Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to. I agree with everything Michael just said. I just want to take the opportunity to um, on the MOU because uh, on scientific cooperation, it's a very confusing story. So I highly recommend anyone interested to check out our colleague Evan Gottesman's outstanding piece on it, which really. Um, helps break it down in a really clear way um, and gives us a lot of insight into what really was agreed with and the implications to it. And the only thing I will add is while it is a bilateral agreement, um, I think one thing we can expect is for the Biden administration not to green light am- any American projects in the settlements moving forward. So while the MOU may remain technically on paper, um, there's already conversations in Biden orbit um, about just simply moving forward in that way as a way to practically sort of, um um reverse that even if not in 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 uh formality at least in practicality
1: yeah that's a that's a great point
0: so one more question for you guys and then i'm going to turn to audience questions um so while trump is on his way out what do you both expect to be the fate of the trump administration's peace to prosperity plan what role if any will it play in american politics going forward i'll
1: i'll go first um I think that it is going to be a complete non-starter for a Biden administration. Um, you know, as as anybody who has paid attention to our webinars, podcasts, written materials uh, for a year knows, um, the Trump plan uh, really just um, kind of busted beyond any any boundaries that had existed before, um, and uh, I think almost all there's almost nothing in it. Um, that that is really going to be uh, that is going to be kind of a starting point for a Biden administration, um, but for the Israeli government, you know, that is the new baseline, and that is going to that's going to cause difficulties going forward, um, because I think Israeli expectations have been reset, and I'm I'm certain that within the corridors of the Israeli government, um, you know, there may be there may be uh, there may be an approach that says, you know, all we have to do is kind of wait things out until the next Republican administration, and the next Republican administration will pick up where the Trump plan left off, and um, you know, and then you kind of get into this, uh, you get into this uh, unhelpful cycle where um, Israelis are waiting out one administration and Palestinians are waiting out another administration, um, and so you know, I do think it will be important for a Biden administration to the extent possible to say to the Israelis, listen, we, we know that you liked this. Um, we know there were lots of things in there that, uh, that you cheered. That's just, it's, it's simply not a realistic plan for any democratic administration. And we have an opportunity to make progress on on some things. Um, but the Trump plan and its implementation is not going to be one of them.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'll go even farther than Michael and say I think it's totally and completely dead. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to be like in a few months, it's going to be like we're going to be out of Shloshim. We're going to be done saying Kaddish like it's just going to be so dead and gone. Um, I will say that it will still its memory will continue to be a blessing for the most conservative Republicans in the Congress. um, And they will clutch dearly to it um, and continue to speak on the House and Senate floors. Um, about the Trump plans being a baseline. And whenever uh, the Biden administration makes any moves on uh, on the conflict or dealing with Israel at all, it will inevitably come up. And I'm sure there will be lots of coordination of talking points about it between a lot of the people across the ocean that have worked together on that side. But I think you will even begin to see mainstream Republicans um, just simply just like see it as not a serious offer because it wasn't. Um, and I think we will be moving on fairly quickly and fairly significantly from
0: that. Great, so I'm gonna to move to audience questions. And by the way, uh, there's already been a request for uh, a link to the to Evan's article, so it's in the chat. So please feel free to uh, avail yourselves of that. We have a, a whole lot of questions. Um, we have a number of questions. Um, about who might be the next ambassador to Israel. So um, both, uh, so Avram Sparangan, Bob Sugarman, one of our board members, and Avi Poster are asking about who might be replacing David Friedman. And by the way, Avi Poster votes for you, Michael. (laughs) I I also, I also... (laughs) But I, I don't because I we want to keep you.
1: I can unequivocally say I am not going to be the next ambassador again, I don't think anybody I, I don't think anybody should should have any fears on that challenge.
2: I mean, I also vote for Michael Koplau if he'll keep, take me as his chief of staff. So we'll go like that. Okay,
0: and I vote for keeping you both at Israel policy forum, but that's just personal. So yeah. what are some of the names that are being touted?
2: Yeah, so um I take a first stab at this one. Uh, if Michael doesn't want to answer, that's fine. Um,
0: He just wants not to to answer for himself.
2: (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to go into names of people. I don't think there's anything uh, productive about about that. But what I will say is that the Biden administration has a very significant choice in front of it about what kind of person they're going to choose. Um, So there are a few different models. Um, You know, ambassadorships often go to very prominent people who have been involved with the campaign, who have a connection to that country, or otherwise a connection to the vice president, and that's certainly an option. Um, it sometimes go to goes to um, members, uh, senior members, uh, policy experts, especially uh, ambassadorships like Israel that require um, a very um, a close relationship uh, to the policy people, and we've seen that, you know, in previous Democratic administrations where there has been sort of a, an expert who has gone into that role. And then there is um, let's not forget that there still is a foreign service um, as um, beaten and demoralized and uh, 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 sort of skeletal uh, as it is. There are still incredible men and women who every day serve their country, patriotic Americans to seek to bring about um, justice and American values throughout the world. Um, that we should all support and give an imma- immense amount of gratitude for surviving the past four years after countless attacks on them from every which way. And um, it is possible that one of the members, one of the distinguished members of the Foreign Service, um, will serve in that position uh, at first. Um, and that would send a very significant signal um, that uh, we are depoliticizing the relationship between the U.S. and Israel. We are not. Uh, Making this part of polit- partisan politics, um, as I don't think it will shock anyone uh, for me to say that David Friedman has, um, and that career uh, foreign service officials are literally barred by law from doing so. Um, and so, to say, so I think you know those are sort of the three models. Um, who is chosen will sort of say something about um, how this will all go. And I just want to remind everybody that just because somebody is chosen to fill that post. At first doesn't mean that's who will serve throughout the entire uh uh um uh term, so I would urge people not to draw too many conclusions about who is in that post in January or March or even uh december of twenty twenty one
0: Michael, do you want to add anything
1: uh no that 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 all sounds about about right to me uh, I guess the only thing I'll add is that um i, I I'll be shocked if whoever it is. Um, is not somebody who's already well known to to the Israelis um, you know as, a, as opposed to ambassador Friedman, who obviously had his own ties to uh, to Israel, but um, you know but kind of came out of the blue in, in terms of in terms of somebody that the Israelis have dealt with in the past.
2: I will say that it definitely will be somebody who will respect the Hatch Act, the act that uh, prohibits government employees from from uh, engaging in partisan politics.
0: Okay. So no, uh, no appearances from the rooftop of the King David during the Republican National, Con- the Democratic National Convention, etc. Okay. Unlikely. Um, Sarah Margoshes, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, Sarah. Who is likely to replace Saeb Erekat, and how does his death impact the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations with regards to the Biden administration?
1: So I don't know who's likely to to replace him, um, but it but it's really you know important to take a minute and um mark the ways in which Saeed Barakat was unique um for starters he was a supporter of of two states and negotiations well before anyone on the Palestinian side well before he was serving uh serving in the PLO um second you know he is he, I was about to say one of. He may be the only um, top PLO official to never have never have served even a day in Israeli prisons. Um, you know, he he was as committed to two states and and negotiations as a pathway as any Palestinian as any any Palestinian alive. Um, so I have no idea who's going to replace him. But it would be almost impossible for anyone um, who replaced him to uh, to be to have a have a track record that was as unwaveringly committed to the idea of two states and to negotiations as the pathway to get there so you know we shouldn't we shouldn't lose sight of that I mean and second, because he had been doing it for so long, um, I think that just him being the head of the Palestinian negotiations department and before that the the chief Palestinian negotiator before there was a negotiations department, um, you know, just by dint of, ha- dint of having him in that position, it kind of elevated negotiations as a, um, as, as a tactic and as a pathway. And, um, you know, at the moment, the prospect of successful negotiations between the two sides is, you know, let, let's call it spade a spade. It's, it's basically zero. Um, I don't think that a Biden administration is going to rush to get the two sides back together at all. Um, And, you know, what that the combination of those things means, unfortunately, that we can easily envision a scenario in which uh, negotiations as a as a pathway for the Palestinians becomes less prominent. Um, I hope that does not happen. um, But it's it's difficult for me to see now a scenario in, in which it doesn't.
0: Um, Howard Edelman asks, "What about support for UNRWA? And I saw a headline today that UNRWA's funding is in serious jeopardy. They, I forget the figure that I saw, but they're clearly in need of funds. And of course, as you noted, uh, the United States under the Trump administration cut off all funding to UNRWA. Um, what What about support for UNRWA in a Biden administration?"
1: Yeah. Um, so I want to let Aaron weigh in, weigh in on this as well because there's certainly a congressional angle to this. Um, but restoring funding for UNRWA is actually one of the funding streams that uh, at the moment does not have any legislation that impairs it um, because uh, it's not subject to, to teleforce. It's not subject uh, to ATCA. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the easiest way to, to turn funding back on to benefit the West Bank and Gaza. It also may be the most controversial way, given the way that people feel about UNRWA. Um, so, I, I'm, you know, if I were betting, if I were a betting man, I'd say that um, it's likely to happen. But as you point out, you know, just yesterday UNRWA announced that they need, I think, uh, I, I think they you know seventy million dollars uh, immediately to continue operations, and uh, they've announced that they will be uh, cutting salaries for for two hundred thousand employees. Um, and, you know, if UNRWA just disappears, it's going to cause a humanitarian disaster uh, inside the West Bank and Gaza, Gaza in particular, you know, where UNRWA is essentially responsible for the entire education system um, and for much of the healthcare care system. Um, and, you know, the people who want UNRWA to kind of wither on the vine and die, I'm not sure that they've quite thought through the implications of, of what that means. And the last thing I'll say, and then I want to you know make sure that Aaron gets a chance to weigh in on this, is... There is, uh, there is a misperception out there that UNRWA and only UNRWA is what is responsible for the perpetuation of Palestinian refugee status. Um, that is factually not true. Um, while UNRWA does have a role uh, because it defines Palestinian refugee status as uh, not ending until there is a resolution uh, to the conflict. If UNRWA goes away, and UNHCR, uh, which is in charge of every other refugee situation, takes over. Uh, under the UNHCR, commissioner of refugees. Yes, sorry. Uh, under, under the UNHCR definition of refugees, um, almost all Palestinian refugees continue to be refugees, including their descendants, uh, except probably the Palestinians who are in Jordan. Um, so this notion that Palestinian refugees are the only ones that pass down from generation to generation is is, is not true. It's it's false. Um, and the idea that UNRWA and only UNRWA is what's responsible for this passing down is also false. So, uh, as, I, you know, as I said, if UNRWA, if UNRWA disappears, it's going to cause huge problems on the ground, and it's, it's not going to resolve this, uh, the Palestinian refugee situation by, by removing refugee status for millions of Palestinians.
2: Yeah, and I agree with absolutely everything Michael said. Uh, Three very quick points. The first one is I get to quote Michael in front of Michael, which is great. Um, You know, Michael has written prolifically about um, an IPS policy on UNRWA, which is, UNRWA funding is absolutely necessary and also UNRWA needs to be fixed and likely replaced and you can look no farther than one of our flagship policy programs of 50 steps before the deal to find a step that Michael has written about this. So no one should be confused about where the positions are which is UNRWA is absolutely necessary and also likely needs to be replaced and for sure fixed. Um, Two two pieces on the funding. One, I think it's going to, I I agree with Michael, I am bullish on the prospects of under a Biden administration, even with a Republican, possible Republican Senate and a skinny majority in the House, that UNRWA will be funded for a whole variety of reasons that are far too wonky to get into at this moment. Um, I'm not sure that it will be explicitly funded as UNRWA and named as UNRWA for political reasons, but I believe that UNRWA will have access to a pot of money designated for Palestinian humanitarian assistance. Um, and that is, um, again, we could do a whole seminar on the appropriations process and how that has changed in the Trump years and how that de- deals with Israel and the Palestinians. But let's just say that I believe UNRWA will have access to funds in a Biden administration, um, in order for Palestinian humanitarian assistance. And the other thing, I think I saw the same Reuters article that you saw Susie, um, which is, there's a question about if the Gulf, uh, in the, in the face of all of these normalizations deals are actually going to continue to step up. Um, and fill some of the void uh, with UNRWA that has been there um, under the Trump years. Um, you know, we have seen, you know, even even if the Biden administration is as bullish on funding UNRWA as Michael and I are, it's going to take time. Uh, it's not a super easy thing to do. They will have access to some money on day one, likely, uh, but, but it, full funding will take time. Um, and so the question is, if, if, the, if the Gulf, if the UAE and Bahrain, And um, any other country that seeks normalization is really serious uh, about their normalization within their normalization processes of promoting peace. Instead of, say, seeking to fund the creation of new Israeli checkpoints, which is something that has been uh, floated out there, they put money into Palestinian humanitarian assistance, additional Palestinian humanitarian assistance, which is far likely to lead to greater stability and uh, creating a situation on the conflict. Uh, on the ground than putting a rubber stamp on uh, the UAE-sponsored with a little show plaque at every checkpoint Say this was paid for by the UAE.
0: Okay. Um, Evelyn Kenvin asks, uh, does the Biden victory impact Netanyahu's future? There was an interesting article in the New York Times today on that topic.
2: Oh, I leave this to Michael.
0: Michael, (laughs) what do you think?
1: So there's a you know there's a debate taking place inside of Israel as to what Netanyahu does with this right on on the one hand you know perhaps it gives him a new foil to run against as he so effectively did uh, with President Obama um, on the other hand you know maybe it makes it um, maybe it points to him actually keeping the current coalition together and using Gantz and Ashkenazi's presence in the government. Um, you know, as a as sort of a, a way to conduct outreach uh, to the Biden administration, and you know, and as a way to um, as a way to demonstrate to the Biden administration that uh, that this is a more centrist Israeli government and not and not a right wing one, or not you know a completely right wing one. Um, you know, who knows who knows what he'll what he'll do. It's certainly you know whatever his short term decision is, whatever his short term calculations are. Um, there can be no debate that he massively benefited from having president Trump in office. And, you know, he, he used that relationship, um, to, to bolster himself politically. Um, and, you know, that's, that's no longer there. So, you know, I think that, um, he certainly, no matter what he decides to do in the short term, he certainly uh, would be better off politically with Trump remaining in office. Um, but you, know, Netanyahu has spent his, entire career being really an excellent political tactician um and i i think as i have now for uh, for years that um nearly everything he's doing is being guided by uh his indictments and uh, and his now his court cases um and you know he'll he'll figure out what he thinks is the best way for dealing with those uh with regard to to a Biden administration and whether it's helpful for him to take an antagonistic approach or not. Um, but uh, but politically, he'd be better off with the second Trump Trump.
0: No question about it. And there was a lot of talk about the fact that it took him 12 hours to congratulate Vice President-elect Biden and his his uh, congratulatory message uh, in comparison to the one he sent to Trump four years ago was people, people noticed um, the difference.
1: Yeah, if I can if I can just kind of jump in on that for for one quick second. Sure. Um, you know, and this is where I'm going to defend Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um whether whether he used the term president elect and vice president elect or not, we all know what he was congratulating them on, right? He wasn't congratulating them yeah. on a on a on a well-won run race that they lost. And I think that this is much more a commentary on President Trump than it is on Prime Minister Netanyahu. Obviously, Netanyahu was worried about what Trump's reaction would be. And I think we should all question what it means in terms of President Trump's pro-Israel record and uh, to what extent Israel can rely on him when the prime minister of Israel is scared to congratulate the next president because of what he thinks the current president might do.
0: Good point. I don't think we need
2: to get into a conversation about this, Michael. I'll just note that I think there are plenty of people in Israel who might disagree with that analysis.
1: Maybe.
0: Okay, moving right along. Carrie um, Nelson asks, what do you think the likelihood of, is of West Bank territorial annexation before January 20th? Trump has other things on his mind, but Netanyahu may act anyway. But I, And I want to just add on to Carrie's question. Is it possible that the Trump administration might want to create more facts on the ground? Uh, who knows what they'll do in, this, what is it, 72 days between now and Inauguration Day, something like that.
1: I'll, I'll be brief, and, and Aaron can weigh in. Um, you know, there are a few things that I'm very confident of. Um, one is that Prime Minister Netanyahu won't move on this without a White House green light. Um, and second is that uh, members of the Trump administration will be doing everything they can to push the Israeli government to go forward with annexation before January 20th. And so, you know, I think it ultimately will come down to whether... Prime Minister Netanyahu thinks it's a good idea to act on that with a new presidency uh, that he has to deal with come January, um, or you know whether he thinks that it will be wiser to um, not start off with a President Biden on such a bad foot. Um, you know, I think the likeliest scenario here is we see the Trump administration greenlight stuff and try to push the Israeli government to. Uh, to move forward with some aspect of annexation and that the Israeli government is smart enough not to go forward with it. Um, but you know we're we're in for a chaotic two months, I, I think, no matter what, both on that front and, and many other fronts.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with Michael's analysis. I'm I, I think Michael is absolutely right that there's few things we can be sure of, but we can sure be sure that the Trump administration will seek to move forward with something in this period on this file. Um, I think, uh, it's yet to be seen whether Netanyahu will take advantage of this once in a lifetime opportunity, uh, to move forward before Biden and how, um, oppositional he wants to be to a Biden administration. One thing I should note is that, you know, as has been said by many, many people, you know, prime minister Netanyahu and, um, president elect Trump have a long relationship. Um, not to say that it is always
1: president-elect Biden.
2: President like Biden. I'm sorry, I'm a little tired. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu and let's try that again. Prime Minister Netanyahu and President like Biden um, have a long-term relationship. Uh, they have not to say that it hasn't been contentious at times. Not to say that um, it hasn't been there haven't been issues, but they know each other. I think it's fair to say they respect each other, um, and they have worked together for a long time. So I think if the you know. It's not like we're returning to an administration, a Democratic administration for which um, Prime Minister Netanyahu automatically, without issue, feels completely oppositional to. With that said, it may not matter, um, and he may just want to take advantage. And I think a lot of this, as Michael has pointed out countless times, will be uh, calibrated based on his own political fate, what he needs within his own domestic political considerations, um, what's happening in terms of any possible future, uh, elections where he is in the polls, because apparently polls there are a little bit more effective than polls here. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, we don't know, I think everyone should prepare for the worst and be surprised if it's better than that. That's my general philosophy in life. Um, but that I think, um, I think there's a lot of calculations and instability to come. Uh, the annexation question is outstanding, um, but certainly there will be some movement on this issue in that period by the White House. It's a question of whether Prime Minister Netanyahu takes the bait.
0: Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So, Michael and Aaron, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I know you guys are incredibly busy right now, and. Fortunately, we can get you back anytime we want, and we could have easily gone another hour because we had that many questions. Uh, Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So, again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once again for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Kaplow column in your inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please also stay tuned for an announcement about our next video briefing, which will take place on Tuesday, November 17th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, everybody.